0: Are you guys picking up this squirrel having a fight next to me? Oh, no. There's just a squirrel having a go next to me. Remember, you do have those bear bells. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It can see me. Oh, my God. It's staring at me. (laughs) Boys. (laughs) Okay, you definitely should
1: not have used those bear bells.
2: How big is the gap under the door?
1: Thank you, Robbie, for yet another intro.
2: This is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time Time on the theme song Watching a film, got a lot more to go Stop wasting time. time on the song Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore And since we started singing, they already added more, so Stop wasting time with another theme song Just tell us the name of the show. The name that I choose is the podcast for tennis shoes. What a terrible name for the show. It's worse than the song. Hello, and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and rank all 1,762 movies on Disney+. Plus. My name is Sean, and I am here with Rob, who it is my understanding is transmitting from the middle of the woods? Um, yes, I am transmitting from the top of a mountain in Narrow
0: Hills Provincial Park.
2: Wow, okay, and uh, you brought some bear protection, right? Uh,
0: yeah, I got a little bear belt. So uh, that'll scare away bears if I happen to be uh, stranded here overnight. But yeah, I, I, I drove through this windy, narrow road for about half an hour to get to the top of a mountain so I can record this podcast with you guys today.
2: Good to know, and I guess we'll have a little bit of a warning. If you do get eaten by a bear, those bells will go off. (laughs) It'll be like uh, the Grizzly Man. Is that on Disney Plus? I don't think so. (laughs) No, but Davy Crockett is. (laughs) We could have a Werner Herzog documentary about Robbie's last days. (laughs) Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Laughing so loud on the top of a mountain, he was eaten by bears. (laughs) I'm also here with Bob, who, uh, where are you transmitting from, Bob?
1: Um, the dining room table that you were having coffee with me at last night in
2: my house. Okay, do you have bear bells? <laughs> you know, now that you say it, I probably should. We all should have bear bells. We don't know where these bears are going to strike. And uh where are you transmitting from, Sean? I am no longer anywhere close to your dining room table. I'm transmitting from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In my bedroom. I gotta say that I'm, this is, uh... Basically, I'm in a shack. It is a
0: warm-up shack for uh, snowmobiles in the winter, uh, so it is insulated, um, and it is currently 30 degrees where I am, and it's just blaring sun. So I literally am dripping sweat down my face as we record this thing. So I might actually my equipment might short out from just amount of water falling all over my microphone and my laptop.
2: Well, thank you for painting us that word portrait, Robbie. That was (laughs) quite vivid. (laughs) So we are here today doing two bed knobs two broomsticks that is our second attempt to record a podcast for bed knobs and broomsticks i love the too fast too furious reference there man that was good (laughs) first time we were attempting to do it we had too many technical difficulties so robbie and his infinite wisdom decided to go to the woods to try it a second time and somehow this is better you sound amazing (laughs) this is the best you've ever sounded robbie you have to record from the woods all the time. We're not going to let you record from your house anymore. No. So we are doing bed knobs and broomsticks. All right. So this movie came out in 1970-something. That's not a year I wrote down. What was the year? I Believe it is 71, <laughs> not it? 1971. Let's go with 1971. Okay. Well, it's based on a book called The Magic Bed Knob, semicolon, or How to Become a Witch in 10 Easy Lessons. Came out in 1943. Its sequel was called Bonfires and Broomsticks. Came out in 1947. Uh, Mid-40s, Walt Disney optioned both books and decided to keep it in his back pocket for a while. Maybe he'd get around to making it. But one of his first priorities was to make a movie called Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins was his first priority, but he couldn't get the rights. P.L. Travers, the author of Mary Poppins, was reluctant to give him rights. He set the Sherman Brothers to start writing music for Mary Poppins did they make this into a movie with Tom Hanks they did they made it into a movie with Tom Hanks called Saving Mr. Banks so I'm gonna do a very quick recap of that film Tom Hanks enters (laughs) scene one the end He teaches everyone a lesson. He sings a few songs. Yeah, Walt Disney had the Sherman Brothers uh, developing some songs for Mary Poppins. But around 1961, it looked like they weren't going to get the rights to Mary Poppins. So Walt Disney said, all right, plan B, let's do Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And he just moved the team over to start working on that. And they worked on Bedknobs and Broomsticks for a few months, started writing songs for that, started developing storyboards. And then Peel Travers had a change of heart. She said, okay, well, maybe you can do Mary Poppins. And so Walt Disney said, scrap everything. No more plan B. We're going back to plan A. And they made Mary Poppins. So Bedknobs and Broomsticks went on the back burner for a few years. After Mary Poppins came out, uh, Walt Disney briefly pursued the idea of doing Bedknobs and Broomsticks as a pseudo-sequel to Mary Poppins. Uh, they were interested in having Julie Andrews return to play the lead role. Um, she was reluctant to do so, however, because she thought it would be too much of a retread. She declined to return Walt Disney said, you know what, that probably does sound like a bad idea. So he stopped production. And then he died. <laughs> and then the people who took over said, well, we don't have any ideas. Let's just make whatever he had unfinished. And so suddenly Bedknobs and Broomsticks was back on. Except this time they had a new cast. They were going to bring in Angela Lansbury as the lead, Eglantine Price. Murder she wrote herself. You know, Angela Lansbury is one of those people. She has the the Steve Martin syndrome where she's been like 60 years old for the past 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> like it's amazing uh, she doesn't age if you look at her in the 1960s she looks pretty much the same as she does today sixty years later. It's uncanny I mean I, you've seen Mary Poppins
0: too right or what is it mary Superman return Mary poppins returns
2: Superman returns
0: <laughs> Superman versus Mary Poppins <laughs> yeah Superman versus Mary poppins
2: save mr banks <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, uh, okay, moving on. That's all we're going to get out of that.
2: <laughs> Sorry, what were you saying in uh, Mary Poppins Returns? Revenge of Mary Poppins? Uh, I, I mean, in Mary Poppins, she uh, she does look a little older. She looks a couple years older. I'll give her that. She looks like she's in her
1: 90s. Come on, man. She is, meant she is, like, 97 years old, if I'm not mistaken. She's
0: almost 100 years old, and I think she's still working. Like, that is impressive. If you, like, go back, like, Steve Martin's one of those people. Remember when you are a kid and you just don't realize, like, what adults look like, right? Like, anybody who's, like, five years older than you think is an adult. Like, Steve Martin, I thought he was a grandpa,
2: and he was, like, 25. Yeah, because he looked like a grandpa. And it's not just, like, <laughs> our little kid brains. If you go back and look at him, in the early 80s particularly, he already he looks exactly the same as he does now. He hasn't aged a day. Getting back to the cast list, we also have David Tomlinson playing Emilius Brown. Roddy McDowell playing yeah. Rowan Julk. Third build, Roddy McDowell. How many lines do you think he has in this movie, Rob? Um... Well, four, I think. Four? Bobby, how many lives do you think he has in this movie? I want to say like six or seven. I'm pretty sure he has one. <laughs> I, I did, when I saw his name, and then when he
0: was acting, I said uh, "I said Rod, Roddy McDowell is like a warm blanket on a cold night. He's just that little bit, uh, you know, you're in sure hands with Roddy
2: McDowell. I mean... The movie, not so much, but the actor, very much. Oh, I I would be very happy to see Roddy McDowell show up. And I was in both scenes that he appeared in, (laughs) one of which he had no dialogue. (laughs) Yet he got third billing. There's also three children, played by Ian Whaley, Cindy O'Callaghan, and Roy Snart. The creative team behind this film, just a couple more comments here. We have the Sherman Brothers doing music. Sherman Brothers, who also wrote the music for... Mary Poppins. It's directed by Robert Stevenson, who also directed Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. It was written by Bill Walsh and Don Degrad, who also wrote Mary Poppins. This is just a return to Mary Poppins. It is a combination <laughs> of Mary Poppins and the sound of music. Now that you think about it, this really would have been hard for Julie Andrews to take this role. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where they're like, no, Julie, you don't understand. It's different. This time you fight the Nazis. Guys. It's like yeah, but like this
0: time you're this time you're a witch who can fly. And
2: she was like, I am
0: aware. <laughs> so I'm gonna let in a little secret and uh last time we tried to record this, I said I never actually finished the movie. I still haven't finished the movie. I fell asleep with ten minutes left, never went back to it. This is one of my best friend's favorite movies, and I thought despite him, I wouldn't finish
2: it. <laughs> Cause you're just a jerk?
0: <laughs> yeah, because I'm just a jerk. It's wow. literally his favorite film from childhood. And I couldn't be bothered to finish it
2: because I'm an ass. It reminds me of the time that you bought me John Carter on Blu-ray. I watched like half of it and then I texted you and I'm like, this is terrible and turned it
0: off
2: after it was like a birthday gift. I just bought you Morbius for your birthday, Sean. <laughs> oh, P.S. I watched that on the plane to spite you so that I never have to open it. <laughs> Perfect. It's terrible. Oh, yeah? But we're not watching Morbius. We're watching knobs and Broomsticks. No, Sorry.
1: I'm just going to interject for a little second on Rob's little comment there. This is coming from the man who in high school watched AVP every single night to go to bed. So for him to say, this movie put me to sleep, I'm like, so you loved it, is what I'm
2: hearing. <laughs> You're probably going to watch
1: it to go to bed tonight. You'll never see the end of this movie just like you never did with AVP. Robbie used uh, to watch
0: the commentary for Star Trek First Contact to go to bed. <laughs> I made you and Bobby watch the commentary for star trek first contact i think i've seen that commentary twice with you <laughs> <laughs> what can i say i like me some jonathan frakes gene gene
2: gene bobby how
0: does this movie start this movie opens with a
1: replica of i will say it wrong with the bayou tapestry um which is an actual tapestry in england that depicts the battle of hastings of when the normans came and conquered england Um, however, this is just a play for play shot of, not play for play. The intro to it is really, really pagan with knights fighting dragons, maybe some demons and like kind of a brief history of England up until the point when it's just the plot of the movie and Engeltine riding around on a broom with her cat, um, above a bunch of soldiers, uh, while the entire score of the movie
2: plays in one medley including the songs that were cut out of the movie (laughs) this movie was originally 20 minutes longer before it was released disney cut out 20 minutes they brought it from two hours 21 down to an hour 59 just under two hours in length uh they cut out at least three songs they cut out other sections including what was the majority of Roddy McDowell's role? But
0: they left that stupid dancing montage in the middle.
2: Well, it was twice as long, apparently, in the original director's cut. Really? Roddy McDowell, so he got Terrence malick in this film. He shows up to the premiere. <laughs> Don't you mean Adrian Brody? Thinking he was third bill, just like Adrian Brody turning up to the premiere of The Thin Red Line. And Roddy McDowell finds that there's only a single line of dialogue left in this film and some business with a hat. Oh, Roddy McDowell, how far you've fallen. Disney told the creative team that they had to cut out 20 minutes because they wanted to do a roadshow release where they take it to the premier theaters in each city on a limited run engagement. And they were going to premiere it at Radio City Music Hall, but Radio City Music Hall had a two-hour time limit. They would only give them two hours for the release. And so they just cut out 20 minutes of the film for every theater, to me, this sounds like a story. To me, this sounds like something a studio executive told the Sherman brothers so they would shut up. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure they cut out those 20 minutes because the movie was almost two and a half hours long. Yeah, that's
0: too long for this film. And it's a
2: kid's film. Yeah. They also released a director's cut in the 90s on Blu-ray, which, weirdly enough, is not the version of On Disney Plus. On Disney Plus, they have the original theatrical cut, which is just under two hours. But if you go to the special features on Disney Plus, they have the special features from the director's cut that was released in the 90s, because all the special features are the Sherman Brothers saying, thankfully, you can now see the original two hour 20 (laughs) cut in all of its glory. We're so happy that you no longer are stuck with that terrible version that had all of our hard work cut out and then you go to it and it's an hour 59. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think I I did read that the version on Disney Plus 2 might be slightly different than that one as the it says nazi subtitles later on the film are cut out. And apparently there may be a version where they are in.
2: So what does that mean? There's a version where there's like English subtitles to the what the Nazis are saying in German?
1: Yeah, there may be. Because they, we'll get to it later in the scene. But I remember that was something we noticed was like, oh, there's no subtitles in the, with the Nazis except for one shot.
2: Ah, were they saying a bunch of racial slurs? I mean, Maybe. <laughs> this is Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin all over again. <laughs> These are the nicest Nazis ever committed to film. Yeah, I know. I don't know what you're talking about. It's very Hogan's Heroes
0: It's weird. One of the the Nazi colonel says to the children, be quiet, please. And then he also says, I'm sorry, but I must send you to a place where you will not be a nuisance. We're
2: getting ahead of ourselves talking about the Nazis, those third act Nazis. Yeah, I did not know what this movie was about. Honestly, like when I saw that tapestry,
0: I was like, there's Nazis in this? And I think I texted you guys being like, that's what this movie's about. I actually had no idea it was even about witches. I thought... Angela Lansbury was another nanny coming to some children's house. I just thought it was a remake of Mary Poppins. That's the only idea I had of it. And then surprise, surprise. It's a reverse Mary Poppins where the children come to her. (laughs)
2: Actually, that's a good way of saying it. Um, you've been reverse Mary poppins (laughs) So, Bobby, after the tapestry opening credits where we see how prominent Roddy McDowell is going to be in this film, (laughs) what happens next? Uh, We cut
1: to a British military colonel driving through the English countryside. And I I remembered this line from when I was a kid because I didn't really understand it. And he comes to a man who is painting over all the signposts. And he says, "What are you doing?" And in this like very like overly done British accent, comments on how he's painting over all the signs in ca- just in case the Nazis land, they won't know where anywhere where to go. And he says, "Well," and the colonel says, "But I'm trying to get to this place. I need to know." And he he says, "I'm not a Nazi. I'm a member. I'm a colonel in the British military." And the man painting the sign turns and says, That's just what you'd say if you wasn't out, see in it. Ah, and proceeds not to tell him
0: where to go. Can you just do the rest of this podcast in that <laughs> just, voice, Robbie? Just Bobby? play all of the roles
2: for us. That was delightful. Can we hear your Angela Lansbury? <laughs> we'll get to it. So after this scene, we then are privy to our first song of the movie, uh, which is called The Old Home Guard. So we cut to a bunch of elderly gentlemen, the old World War I crew, who have now been called up to serve as the home guard because the younger men have all been sent across the sea. They're fighting in Europe. They're, they're on the front lines, but the old home guard are protecting the interior of the English countryside. And so you have what are essentially the leftovers. Elderly men pass their prime. They can't move very fast. But they're trying to recreate their past glories. And they look tired and confused. And none of their hats fit anymore. (laughs) And to me, that pretty much captures (laughs) everything about this movie. Sure, yeah. It's just the leftovers. Last week, we talked about um, Blank Check, about how the formula Snyder proposed about opening a movie is you open it with a scene or an image that captures the themes and tone of this film. And I feel like elderly gentlemen who are having trouble doing their choreographed routine, singing past songs because the first choice was not available, perfectly captures this movie's relationship to Mary Poppins. Yep. That being said, I do like the song. I think it's a fun song and I think it's a fun scene. All right. So what happens after this, Bobby? Um, do all the voices. Do all the voices. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Make the sound effect of the uh, of her motorcycle going. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And then puff of green smoke.
0: Yeah, that was kind of cool. She actually rides on sulfur. So yeah, after this,
1: we um, Colonel makes his way to the church, and he's just coming to see how the division of the children is going. It was a thing that happened in England in the Second World War, where they took children to the countryside to get them away from the Blitzkrieg, away from the bombing. Basically just checking in on... Is it it a nun he's chatting with? Because... no, because they're not at the church. They're at the... It is, it's at the, the museum. It's at the museum. They're at the museum. Yeah. Roddy McDowell
2: yeah. is a priest. That's right. There's the priest. I don't and think should, she's then. a nun,
1: though. No, that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm getting too confused with the sound of music. <laughs> but yeah, just to check on them, they find out there are... Discovers there are three children left. Engelstein is happens to be coming into town to pick up a package and the woman is just like hey you congratulations you're here you get the last three children and i'm closing the museum have fun
2: you just got reverse mary poppins <laughs> slams the door of the museum <laughs> all right yes so they stick her with these three kids
0: and she's like no i can't possibly look after children's my home is in no condition to and then her house is the nicest thing i've ever seen it's such a quaint little cottage she's like oh i can't do that
2: I'm totally ill-equipped. There's a little bit of backstory here to this character that was kind of cut out, and I'll just mention it. In the extended version, apparently there's a running story about Roddy McDowell, basically his entire role, his third build role that got Terrence malick Uh, He's trying to woo Angela Lansbury so that he can get her property because her house is so nice. That's what it is. That's what it is. And she's rejecting his proposals. She's rejecting his advances. And she sings a little song about how mm, she'd rather be alone and she doesn't really need any of these people, which sets up her character as somewhat of a loner. She doesn't really want to have anyone in her life because they're just going to mess up all of her plans. Bobby, what are her plans?
1: believe her plan is to just become
2: a full-fledged witch and live alone in the countryside well but she why does she want to become a witch I'm jumping a little bit ahead when she explains it but let's just talk about it now why does she want to become a witch
1: oh is it because well is it the last is it the last spell she wants like is or is it the motivation of because I didn't well, both um, you, well, what's the motivation um if it's the same motivation as the real- life person she is based off of it is to help in the war effort what Wait, what whoa what are you what? Wait,
0: wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? What real life person are you talking about? So give me- Is this a true story? Is Bedknobs and Broomsticks based on a true story? <laughs> <laughs> let
1: me let me check my search history. There is uh, Bedknobs
2: Broomsticks true story question <laughs> mark.
1: Bedknobs and Broomsticks. The character of Eggleton is apparently loosely based on a British occultist and author Dion Fortune, who was a known Christian occultist in England. Why
0: would they call her Eglantine? Her name is Dion Fortune. That's like the
1: best name ever. Who was known to hold seances and pray. And hold seances for the benefit of England during the war in her, I don't know if you'd want to call it a coven, but she held seances and prayed for angels to come and protect the coast and used her arts for the war effort or so she thought. And this character is loosely
2: based on that. Really? Wow. Okay. Um, Yeah. So Angela Lansbury's uh, motivations for this, much like Dion Fortune's, are to help with the war effort and to use her magical abilities to defeat Germany in World War II. So she brings the children back to her house, and we're introduced to my favorite character, the cat! Cosmic Creepers. (laughs) That's the best name for a cat I've ever heard. Cosmic Creepers? Because she says his name is Cosmic Creeper. That's the name he came with. I'm not going to name him. How did that cat come with the name Cosmic Creepers? She is taking these uh, long-distance learning courses about how to become a witch. Hogwarts by mail. Where she gets... Um, lessons in the mail and equipment and one of the things that they sent her was the cat and they called it Cosmic Creeper so like this cat was mailed like he just put the cat in the mail (laughs) the British post very reliable right Bobby oh yeah the best we're getting ahead of the twist which comes later but David Tomlinson is playing the head of this college and he's the one sending her everything so he just found a cat on the street (laughs) like a stray cat and mailed it to her, <laughs> but like the shipping on that must have been atrocious. Like I don't know how he's making a profit on this. On this, oh, it would have been like four or five pence at least to ship a live cat during the war. Like, come on. Like I don't. No wonder this guy can't run any business. <laughs> well, <in it>. like- <laughs> he sends her a
0: broom too, and then like I guess we find out that this whole thing is a scam. But Eglantine just happens to be like an actual witch genetically or something and so she makes
2: the broom fly right but like she could have just made any broom fly yeah it's just a normal broom yeah yeah. he just sends her a broom I can kind of go along with that as part of the scam where he's just yeah, like yeah. oh it's a special broom Ooh, send us the <laughs> money we'll send you this special broom and then he just takes a broom but like as part of this plan he's like I'm gonna send you a cat and then he just gets a cat and he puts it in <laughs> and he like puts it in a package <laughs> and
0: he just that- sends it to northern England that cat is, like, pretty well-behaved, if I remember correctly. Like, it, it hisses at the kids when it comes in, but... It hisses at the kids. Again, this
1: is my favorite Disney trope of... We'll, we'll get to it in a minute, but... The cat is self-aware. It knows magic, and later in the film... Yes, is it does. So it is aware that Englantine is saying the spelling correctly and hit, meowing at her disapprovingly.
2: Yeah, like the dog from Freaky Friday. Yeah. Now, this might be a stupid question, mostly because I think I watched most of this movie on my laptop, but is that cat... Sometimes a puppet? Uh, I think there's a couple puppet shots. I I wrote down, wow, that's a good puppet. And then afterwards I went, oh, wait, is it it just a real cat and I'm an idiot? Like, that was a pretty matted-haired cat. Like,
1: it's kind of hard. It was a pretty matted-haired cat. Like, they backcombed it and everything. Um, Yeah. They used a lot of, um, to get the cat to shake its head. They, like, spent, they played the footage back and forth, a la Ed Wood. There was a couple of those I noticed.
2: All right, so, after being introduced to the cat, she makes the kids dinner. And I wrote this down for dinner she makes them eat bark and nettles and seeds she has like the diet of a sparrow (laughs) my next question was is this part of professor brown's course like his witchcraft course or is this just what she eats normally like she just has always eaten thorns and nettles well if that's the case no wonder she's a witch to which the young boy responds with No fried food? How do you keep your health? (laughs) Well, that sounds like a joke, but she's eating fucking thorns. I I honestly want to know how she keeps her health. High in fiber, man. She's a witch. (laughs) She's a witch. Yeah, I don't don't really think there's any nutrients in anything she's eating either. So I think the kids have a point in that. So she sends the kids off to bed after eating their nettles and thorns. Um, And she takes out the broom that she picked up. At the post office that day. And it comes with a note. And the note said, Here is your broom as part of your witchcraft course by mail. And it sets out instructions on how to use a broom and how to, including how to sit on a broom. And the instructions explicitly say that a lady never uh, sits astride a broom. They ha- she has to sit side saddle. Like a horse. Side saddle. Yes, side saddle on the broom. And so my question on that is, is Professor Brown only scamming women? <laughs>
1: yes. I mean, we'll get to it later, but there is the poster he's had made up the entire time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that poster. Wait, so you're suggesting that his entire scam was to find a real witch? He's unbreakable this woman? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He
1: is secretly the villain of this film.
2: He's Sam Jackson from Unbreakable, who has created this entire thing in order to find the one witch that's out there. Okay. I like it. We missed there's a there's a brief little a brief little talk at dinner before they're fed
1: tree bark and nettles. The children (laughs) begin to plot their escape, and without turning around, she says there's no point whispering I have impeccable hearing. As she's downstairs messing around with her broom, the children upstairs in their bedroom say, All right. She's asleep, time to break out and go home. This is where worlds collide and then you have the odd hijinks of her trying to figure out how to ride the broom in a very kind of long, awkward, drawn-out sequence while Cosmic Creepers looks at her very disapprovingly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) again which I love it's a trope is that cat magical as well well with Professor Brown's luck he grabs a random cat and it happens to be a magical cat yeah
1: or he said the like shape-shifting spell and that is just a person that is forever a cat
2: I'll uh, comment on a couple of things when she first tries to ride the broom there's as Bobby said there's kind of a bit of a stunt sequence where it gallops around and try to kick her off and she has to hang on to it and it's a weird sequence because at the beginning she comes into her basement and she lights a candle and then she reads the letter and she gets everything all set up. To- try out her broom and then just before she rides it she goes and she blows out the candle and it's solely so that they can have a stunt double actually do the sequence where she's being oh, really? she's riding like a bucking bronco broom that throws her around and kicks her off because as soon as she gets knocked off she stands up and then goes and relights the candle again <laughs> it's just solely so that it's in darkness when they do their stunt oh, sequence wow. and like
0: hide the liars too probably yeah
2: like it It's a very weird, it's kind of very obvious, but whatever. (laughs) She goes flying out the window, the kids see her, and then her learner's license on the broom doesn't permit her to do too many stunts, and she ends up crashing it. And the kids, they decide, oh, she takes a a pretty
0: heavy fall, man. Like, I know. Good on. 40 and or 60-year-old and or 90-year-old Angela Lansbury at that point in time. Well, you think they they dragged her up into the sky and dropped her? What are you talking about? No, I'm just saying, like, I felt for her because, yeah, she looks like someone's grandma, right?
2: (laughs) I was like, how is she going to recover? Well, she doesn't actually fall. They used a stunt double for her to just jump three feet in the air. They're not going to actually throw Angela Lansbury off of a broom <laughs> from, like, a, an airplane. It does get addressed in the dialogue, too,
1: because I think, one of, I think one of the children asks if she's hurt. And the older son says, you got a, a witch?
2: And they just run back to their bedroom. Well, they decide to stick around because they're going to blackmail her. Because if she's a witch and they know she's a witch, then they can get what they want out of her or else they'll tell everybody that she's a witch. And so they reveal that to her the next morning. Charlie, one of the kids, goes straight to extortion before breakfast. Like, it is the first thing he
0: does when he wakes up. He doesn't even, like, lean into it. No nuance. He just basically like, hey, you're a witch, aren't
2: you? Like, straight into it. I was like, ah, give this guy props, man. He doesn't dig around. Although his priorities are a little weird. What does he extort her for? He's like, I want some jam. Yeah. I want some sausages. Oh, and maybe a little bit of coin. A little bit of (laughs) lolly. A little bit of lolly. And she kind of plays around. She's like, "Ah, well played, sir. Well played. And she decides in response uh, to turn him into a... I think she's going to turn him into a toad, isn't she? She's planning to turn him into a toad, but the spell doesn't go so well and actually turns him into a rabbit. And she says, oh, nuts... I can never get it into a toad. It always goes into a rabbit. And then Cosmic Creepers chases the rabbit around, trying to eat it, until the spell wears off and the kid turns back into a boy. I love that sequence, too,
1: because as stated, Cosmic Creepers is aware Cosmic Creepers watched the boy turn into a rabbit,
2: is well aware that he is going to eat a human child, and goes for it anyway. <laughs> Angela Lansbury doesn't even seem that weirded out about it. She's just like, ah, he's probably not going to eat him. Yeah, like, ah, he'll turn back into a human. It'll be fine. So, um, what happens next, Robbie? Uh, doesn't they, they,
0: they make a pact
2: that they're giving us something valuable? Right? So otherwise they won't turn him in? Yes. So, um... She, uh, We already covered it, but she explains to them that it's so important that she gets to continue her studies as a witch because it's going to be important for the war effort to fight the Nazis because she has a very important spell she has yet to learn. So she has to complete her studies. And then they decide that they will keep her secret um, and to, uh, like you said, to cement the pact, um, she's going to give them something of value. And so she decides to give them... A traveling spell with something that twists right it's very important that it twists she has to enchant something that can twist and so she asks them if they have a ring or something that they can twirl um and so the youngest child reveals that he had taken the bed knob off of the bed upstairs and so she says ah that that'll work and so she enchants the bed knob using this traveling spell now I want to make clear that this traveling spell, she explains, came with the introduction to the course, because she paid early and in advance for these lessons, and so they threw in the traveling spell. The traveling spell seems really useful. Yeah. Why has she never used this before? Right? And, like, it doesn't fail ever. Like, her
0: her turning somebody into a rabbit spell fails all the damn time. She can't fly worth shit. But the traveling
2: spell is perfect from the get-go. It can travel anywhere. Anywhere! You can send all of all of the British army into downtown Berlin on a bunch of beds. Yeah. Instantaneously. What is she waiting for?
1: She, she could, in theory, just take a bolt off of one of the ships and just, like, screw it back in place and take an yeah. entire battalion of people somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Like she, she she's not kidding when she's like I'm going to change the face of the war if she just used that spell.
2: But she's waiting for this other spell, like she already has a spell that will end the war. She has a she has the Manhattan Project spell yeah. that will shift everything, but she's like no, I'm waiting for this other spell, which we'll get to. And I just I don't I don't I don't know what we'll get to it. We'll get to. Bobby, it. yeah. Did you uh did you write down what the little
0: kid says? Not Ruddy Lightly. <laughs> Not <laughs> that. No. I mean I wrote that down. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to say the the lie the little kid says. Um, that they when Angela Lansbury says that he they need the they need the bed knob. What's that got to do with my knob? <laughs> <laughs> you better believe Thank I fucking you. wrote that line down. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. <laughs> uh, I wrote it down
2: too. <laughs> So Angela Lansbury reveals that this traveling spell, now that she's enchanted this bed knob, will allow them to travel anywhere they want in the world on this bed. And all they have to do is say where they want to go and then tap the bed knob three times and give it a quarter turn spin. The youngest kid wants to go to the jungle, but she, at that exact moment, gets another letter. And it's a letter from Professor Brown telling her that school's canceled, he's closed the shop, there won't be any more lessons, good luck, goodbye, and everything. Due to the war. And she says, oh no, that won't do at all. And she says, okay, well let's use this magic bed to actually go travel to London so I can see Mr. Brown. Now, she has to be the worst british world war ii caretaker ever right like she has these kids for one day they ship them from london to get them away from the blitzkrieg yeah. and then the, the next day she takes them right back to the. She takes them it. immediately back to
1: london the next day and then we'll we'll get to it too and amelius brown like takes them
2: like to the exact thing they have been avoiding this whole time <laughs> <He> <laughs> literally takes them, to a bomb. Like, takes them to a bomb on an unexploded bomb they traveled across the entire country to get away from that. And she doesn't even think twice. She's just like, oh, no, let's go to London. Yeah. yeah. So they travel to London. They travel into a back alleyway. Um, one one funny line I did like. Um,
0: uh, Angela Lansbury says, uh, we don't want to go to London on, in an unmade bed. I thought that was just funny. I thought that was kind of cute and charming. As uh, she's like making the bed. And I'm like, what's it going to look like when you arrive in a bed? It doesn't matter if it's
2: made or unmade.
0: But, you know,
2: she's a proper British lady, I guess. Um, uh, She actually has a line later on. I'll just say it now that I thought was actually really funny. Uh, when they get Professor Brown into the bed to travel later, Professor Brown uh, initially climbs into the left side and she goes, ah, ah, ah. I always travel on the left. <laughs> yeah, that one's Which good. I <laughs> thought was a really funny line. I thought that was clever. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, so actually I was skipping something. When she's making up the bed for them to travel, she sings a little song. And the reason she sings a song is because the eldest son, I'm just going to double check his name here, Charles. Charlie. Charlie. Charlie, she's making up this bed for them to travel to London. All of a sudden, Charlie doesn't want to go. And he says, this is all a bunch of nonsense. He's like, oh, that bed's not going to travel. I can't follow the logic of this movie because this kid just turned into a bunny. <laughs> and now suddenly he doesn't believe in magic, and she has to sing a song to him about like, "Oh, you don't believe in magic? I'm going to sing a song about how children should believe in magic." Mary Poppins does. He just turned into a bunny, and then
0: the the cat scares him to jump in the bed. That's what actually,
2: yeah, that's what does it because right? he had previously almost been eaten by the cat, which is now when he was a bunny. <laughs> when he yeah. was a bunny, and he's just like, "Ah, oh, magic that don't exist." I don't know why he's suddenly New Yorker. Bobby, you have to do the voice. (laughs) But she sings a song to him about uh, the age of unbelieving and scolds him into believing in magic once again because he's forgotten in the six hours since he was turned into a bunny. They go to London then. They all go to London on their magical bed and they arrive in an alleyway. And I think Charlie says, where are we? And his sister says, look at the smog. It's London, (laughs) obviously, which I thought was kind of nice. And they're looking for professor brown because they asked the bed to take them to professor brown in london who runs this magic hogwarts by mail but they don't see him anywhere they're a little confused until lansbury goes out to look for him and then the kids see a man carrying a professor brown suitcase down the road and they follow him or he sets out his sidewalk salesman um what would you call it just his his table his his stand
1: yeah his like tabletop
0: briefcase (laughs) Barrow? Yeah. Is it a...
2: It's a uh, portmanteau?
0: <laughs> Lewis Carroll style. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's, that's literally what it was, right? It's a briefcase that turned to a table.
2: And he takes this stuff out and he's going to sell magic tricks to everyone on the street. And they are fake magic tricks. They are just gimmicky magic tricks. They're not actual real magic. Bobby, what did you think about this scene? And what did you think about our good friend, David Tomlinson?
1: I believe he's referred to as nothing but a common shyster. <laughs> I... I like how into his act he is until he fails miserably in front of a group of people, but he's not willing to give up. I, enjoy, I enjoyed that about him, and, like, that, I, it's, it's interesting because he does end up having an arc later on in the movie where it's like, it doesn't matter what, he's always, he's always, the show is
0: always on, he's never not performing. And even then, his magic acts weren't terrible up until he smashed that glass, right? Like, they weren't bad. Yeah, yeah. But considering he's running a whole side hustle of trying to find a witch... And mailing cats to random strangers. I mean, he doesn't have that much time to
2: practice. Well, one of these, has got to break big. That's all i got to say. And so Angelo Lansbury then confronts him. She's a little shocked because he doesn't appear to be an actual professor of anything. He appears to be a common shyster, as you said, Bobby. And she says, I have been taking your courses by mail. And he says, ah, lovely to meet you. No refunds. She says, I don't want a refund. I want the last lesson and he kind of pushes back against her and then does she turn him into a bunny is that exactly the sequence of events there remind me the sequence of events of how he comes to learn that she's actual witch does she does she turn
1: him in, she turns him into a rabbit downtown right
0: yep she turns into a rabbit twice
2: yeah cuz he turns into one and and then later i mean he becomes a rabbit three times in the movie eventually it wears off and he goes what the bloody hell was that and she says it's a lesson that you sent me that's the magic Spell to turn people into toads, except it turns them into a rabbit. And he goes, "That worked? <laughs> I, I'm I'm a con artist. I'm sending you fake stuff. I just sent a cat that I found on the street. <laughs> How is this working for you?" He said he got it all, everything from a book.
0: Right? He got all the spells from a random book he found at the the market. From the spells of Astaroth. Yes. Yeah. The very same Astaroth from Soul Calibur. <laughs>
2: canonically in the same universe <laughs>
0: canonically in the same universe
2: <laughs> after discovering that she is actually a witch he like mr glass <laughs> decides that he's found the woman that he has been looking for all this time he sent out all of these lessons to all of these unsuspecting people in order to find the one witch who could be his partner on a traveling magic act um How many people do you think he was sending these lessons to? How many people do you think he conned? Or how many people now have magical powers because his his spells actually work? Because
0: the spells, you just have to believe apparently, right? And they actually work because later on in the film, he turns himself into a rabbit, right?
2: Yeah, I think if you just say them with conviction, they work. So anyone, presumably, that he mailed this to. Like, there's so many people that could have prevented this war. Like, stop the Nazis.
0: Like, they all have the traveling spell. She's the yeah. only
2: one who wanted to stop the Nazis. Like, everyone else is just using it for personal gain. I mean, like, to be fair, we'll get to it, but boy, does she stop those Nazis.
0: I don't actually know how
1: she stops them Nazis. We'll get to that. Because <laughs> um, right, this is the first one where... I did feel bad, Um, because she's holding an actual rabbit up by its ears for the shot. And then
2: it twinkles and it cuts back, and she's holding him by the ear. So... He decides to take them to his home so he can show them the book that he got all of these magical spells from. So they go on. Does he walk them there, or they take the? Bed? They take the bed. They take the bed. And that was so when they traveled by bed, um,
0: it goes to like Technicolor and you know fancy lights. And yeah, then, and they they play the negatives and stuff. Yeah, and uh, and so the first time it happened, I was like, ah, oh, it's kind of cool. And then they did it again, and I was like, are they going to do this every single time they traveled by bed? And fortunately, it does, it it cut down a lot. But I was just like, oh my god, no, (laughs) this is too much. We've seen it. I know it's important for 19-whatever when this movie came out. We get it. We've seen the shot. Move on. I
2: do really love them traveling by bed.
0: I loved it too. The premise of it is hilarious. When they land anywhere, they're just on the bed. (laughs) I I, I love the way the bed also, like, hits the
1: brakes
2: and, like, leans forward and then stops every time. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's it's delightful. So they go to his house, and his house is a place where he's actually squatting. It's a mansion where the people have fled, much like any reasonable, sensible soul has done, much like these children huh. that they've brought back to London because there's now a bomb in the yard. Yeah, so it's not that because of the blitz, it's because there's
0: a literal bomb that unexploded. The bomb is there because of the blitz.
2: Yeah, sorry. It just
0: was unexploded. Yeah, just unexploded.
1: And then he says that the bomb is the best friend he has ever had.
0: Yep, that's depressing.
1: Uh, they get inside the house and he has them over for dinner, but dinner is by candlelight, and someone asks why you have dinner by candlelight, and he says something about uh, to like add to the ambiance of dinner. And the one child says, "More likely, so a copper don't you and catch you f- like find you hiding in here."
0: Yeah,
1: uh, which the child is right because this dude is like con artist extraordinaire.
0: Wait. That suitcase is probably his only possession, right? Because he's living out of a mansion.
2: Yeah, he's squatting. So is he homeless? Well, if you count squatting, then he's not homeless. But otherwise, yeah, he's homeless. I mean, I'm currently squatting in this s- this warm up s- uh, snowmobile shack right now.
1: <laughs> no, you're, you're 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 allowed to be in there as a warm up shack. That's fine. He is like invading someone's home. Like, assumably the tuxedo was just one he stole from the house to like add to his act.
0: Ah, yes. He's, he's, he's eating their food, inviting people over, like... Like he owns the place. Yeah. He tells the kids to go play, right? And uh, then he's going to tell Angela Lansbury his grandiose plan. And Bobby, you alluded to this earlier. Uh, he, he has a poster already pre-made of himself with a, a witch uh, assistant for his magic act. That was his entire thing. It was so funny when he pulled that thing out of there. Because he says he's had it set up, ready to go this whole time. Like,
1: when I, I will find her and I'll have the poster set up. She won't be able to say no.
2: I don't understand what his sales pitch is. His sales pitch is, you do all of the work and I will be the name on the poster and get all of the glory and pretend that you're the assistant. It's not even like a scam. Because that's how he pitches it to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, Now you can do everything and I will get the glory.
0: I mean, at least he's honest when he's not conning people. He's an honest con. He con seems man. to
2: really think she'd take him up on it though. Yeah.
0: He's like, doesn't that sound awesome? She refuses to give Angela Lansbury the the book, right? So she turns him into a rabbit again. Oh yeah,
2: I know. I wish they had another spell. <laughs> like, yeah, this is like the third time they've used this spell, and it's like They have three spells. It's a rabbit. Travel or fly,
0: right? Uh,
1: nope. You didn't finish the movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. At the end, they get the spell. They get the, I can animate coat, uh, suits of armor to fight the Nazis. That was in the tapestry at the beginning. I, I wrote down ghost knights versus Nazis because that's what I thought the movie was going to be. That rabbit found a specific book on a bookshelf and actually took the book out of the shelf. And
2: I'm like, this was 1970. They trained that rabbit to do it. It was very impressive. I was like, props to that rabbit. So the rabbit takes out the book, which is the Spells of Astaroth, brings it to Angelo Lansbury. And at the same time, the kids are up in the nursery. And the kids come across a book. And this book is a children's picture book about the Isle of Nabumbu. <laughs> now, this is going to come into play later, but who lives in this mansion? Why do they have this picture book about the Isle of Nabumbu? is it mary poppins is it mary poppins is it another witch is it asteroth like where it's very confusing to me why this book is here canonically in my brain now
0: it's uh the, the family from mary poppins this is just cherry lane yes
1: this is this, this is cherry lane and the dad told everybody he was fighting in the war effort meanwhile he is just running his magic con act on the corner and he never left london it's <laughs> the same character <laughs> it's the same actor, it's the same actor.
2: The war comes The kids get sent into the north (laughs) father dodges the draft By changing his name And (laughs) pretending to be a magician (laughs) He makes a living by selling fake Magical spells That he got out of a book Which he claims he got at Portobello Road But I don't think that's true now I think the book he got from Mary Poppins Yes he did And he tried to sell it on Portobello Road Yeah And the bookkeeper guy split in half. That's why I got split in half. And that's why the Isle of Nabumbu book is in that house. Yeah. All right. This adds up. Is it Cherry Lane? Is it Cherry Cross Lane? What's the... Ah, it's something. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll call back to it when we get to Mary Poppins. We'll call back to it. I'll fix it next time. Yeah. I'll re-record myself saying the name of the Mary Poppins house correct. It's something (laughs) like that. There's a lane in it and there's a cherry in it. Yeah. But you got to keep this part in after. And you have to
0: say... Lane. Very loudly enough, it's Lane. <laughs> there
2: you go. Okay, so the father from Mary Poppins uh, has uh, provided one half of the Book of Astaroth to um, Angela Lansbury. The second half is in the possession of someone at Portobello Road at the book market there. Um, he doesn't know where it is. He doesn't even know if it's still there. And the kids have found the book about the Isle of Nabumbu. So they, in an attempt to find the other half of the Book of Spells of Astaroth, in order to get that wonderful magical spell that's going to win the war against Germany, they go to Portobello Road. And they immediately sing a song about Portobello Road, which is just Chim chiminy, Chim Chimini, Chim Chim Chiri. It's the same friggin' song. Doesn't the dad from Mary Poppins get propositioned by two prostitutes first, though? yes. Right, that, so that, that seem to know him very well. Seem to know him very well because he's like Portobello Road. Portobello <laughs> Road. And get whatever you want on Portobello Road, and then two prostitutes walk up. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's what you're singing about. Yeah, yeah. he sings Chim Chimney as they walk down the street cue like a 20 minute dance sequence it's so long everyone in town just starts dancing on portobello road you're in the middle of the blitzkrieg now i understand people gotta have fun like the people who <laughs> stuck around when this was happening i was like wasn't this during world war ii why is everyone dancing in london like wh-? it like
0: they should have cut this they should have cut this like why did they do this and the the, the dance
1: sequence is all soldiers and it's all members of the british colony as well like every soldier is not in- a soldier from the colonies.
2: Yeah, and so it's like a parade of colonialism.
1: I mean, I guess you're left to imagine that they're, like, all on shore leave and all came to Portobello Road to also fuck prostitutes, the same reason the dad frequents it.
2: I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's... They're all soldiers from the different colonies who have come to Portobello Road to get those famous Portobello prostitutes. And maybe buy a book. <laughs> <laughs> and then they do their ethnic dances in one after another. Yeah. It's... It's okay. I don't know. It's, it's long. It's way too long. And they just sit around
0: and watch it. I texted you guys around this. I was like, what is happening? Why? Why? And you said this was
2: 20 minutes longer? Well, it was twice as long. Apparently, it, whatever it is now was twice as long in the original cut. It
0: was 40 minutes.
2: Well, because the they they trimmed the dance sequence down that's that's crazy. Listen, Britain had a lot of colonies at the time, okay? Yeah, <laughs> The sun never set on the British Empire. There were a lot of ethnic dances to get through about subjugated peoples that has to go fight their war. yeah, that's the
0: history of my people, all right.
2: So they uh come across a uh a guy named Swinburne's who tells them, oh, I might know where that book is. I'll take you to this book dealer, this very particular book dealer. And he takes them down into this basement bookstore, this kind of like gangster book dealer. Um, And I love how they bring the bed with them. That's one of my favorite parts. They like like push the bed down these stairs. And, like, this gangster book dealer is slightly confused, but also just lets it go. <laughs> that's my favorite part. slightly confused. Like, he's just kind of like, that's a weird thing to bring with you, but all right, whatever. Let's get to bartering. I love that this gangster
1: is simply known as the Bookman. Yeah. And he has the seediest bookstore in the basement dwelling of London. And his bookstore is so seedy, he has a knife-wielding
0: gangster work for him. But all he does is read books. <laughs> to sell books. Books. Yeah, he's a glorified librarian. I know. He acts like he's a drug dealer. He also has the best hair in the entire world. (laughs) It was so long. His eyebrows
1: were like four inches long.
2: Oh, man. I think he's
1: also the only American member
2: of the cast in the film. He's actually from New York. So they get down there, and he has the other half of the book. So they decide to put the book together, and they read what the final spell is. And the final spell is... And then they read the other half of the page and the other half of the book. And it says, written on the star of Astaroth, which he kept on him at all times. And they say, well, that doesn't help at all. And this gangster bookkeeper uh, has a little bit more information where he says, well, this uh, Astaroth, the guy who came up with all these spells, uh, apparently went crazy and tried to turn animals into humans. He tried to anthropomorphize a bunch of animals and he went to go live with them and he was never heard from again. It's an island of Dr.
0: Moreau situation,
2: isn't it? It's an island of Dr. Moreau situation. And there's a record of this island having been seen by some sailors. And it's the Isle of... What was it again? The Island of naboo <laughs> And then the kid goes, oh, I know Isle of naboo It's in my picture book here. Then they say, well, we're going to go there. And then the gangster says, ah, well, I'd like to see you get out of this basement with your lives. I got a knife-wielding gangster with me. How are you going to get out of here? And then they just use their magic. And then they just take their flying bed to the Isle of naboo Now, just like I did with Flight of the Navigator, I, I took a look at the the length of the movie so far. And strangely enough, the exact midpoint of this film is when they get on the bed here... And the kid taps the bed knob again and he says, take me to the Isle of Nabumbu. N- oh, wow. That's the exact midpoint of the movie.
0: That's why they needed that that so long of a dance montage for this one thing. They needed to pad it for the beginning
2: for a yeah, time. Yeah, they needed to <laughs> get that midpoint at that exact <laughs> moment. Up until now, I was mostly with this film. I think like the songs are kind of a poor man's Mary Poppins. You know, the dance sequence is too long, but I like the premise – I like the the actors, I kind of like some of the jokes that they're throwing out there. I like how this is about this woman who's going to take a long distance witchcraft course to defeat the Nazis, but she's taking it from a con artist who doesn't even understand what's going on and they're flying around on a bed. Like everything about this, I'm like, sold. And then now they go to the Isle of Nabumbu, which is animated. And so it's just the Mary Poppins jumping into the street art sequence once again. Except I don't understand it here. <laughs> and it's not as good at all. No, it's not. Like,
0: in Mary Poppins with the penguins, it's so good. Yeah. And Dick Van Dyke dancing around. This, it's it's like a hack
2: job version can, of it. Can we just answer what is going on here? Are they going into the comic book or are they going to an actual island? Are we supposed to believe, like... Is the animation a suspension of disbelief form in which this movie is presenting animals that act like humans? Or are they in the picture book? They are supposed to be in the picture book because later when they leave.
1: Really? She has a line of dialogue saying, I was, you know, was foolish to think we could take an item from one world to another. She actually does point out that they've gone somewhere that, that isn't real.
0: Then how do they take the bed with them? Because
1: the bed they're real and they can leave with the bed, but the the amulet which we'll get to can't come into our
2: world. She does she does say that. But then where did Astaroth come from? Is Astaroth from the book? Yeah. Um I mean, I'm just Like is Astaroth real? Is the magic from the book? What why was the book in the Mary Poppins house? Like what is happening
1: here? I'm I'm going to go with that Astaroth Died with his amulet and never took it off, but hid it in the Isle of Naboomboom in the back of the book, and to throw people off his trail so they'd all go looking for this island that doesn't exist. He hid it in the children's book next to the spell book he kept in his mansion in London before the Blitzkrieg. <laughs> okay. I, I I am just
2: trying and to. Mary Poppins had it because she's magical. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It was it was in her like bag or like maybe up her umbrella. I don't know. Okay. I loved this sequence as a kid goes on for a really long time so long I don't mind the fish thing the fish things like kind of weird and kind of funny and as you say it's a poor man's Mary
0: Poppins but like that's fine but they're just breathing underwater right like or is it because they're in a book doesn't matter well
2: I, yeah if they're in a picture book then whatever they can breathe underwater that's kind of why I I just wish they had established the rules of what's happening like they seem to be suggesting we're going to an island in the Pacific but then they go into a book it's just Not at all. They don't establish the rules of how they're operating. But
0: then don't they, like, breathe bubbles? Like, don't they have bubbles come out of their mouth when they talk? Like, cartoon bubbles?
1: There's bubbles around them. Maybe there is. I mean, he, like, a fish swims into his mouth and swims out alive. When
2: they get to the island, they initially plunge into the ocean outside of the island. And just as a reminder, all of this is animated. So this is Mary Poppins going into the street art. This is an animated world with live-action people being superimposed. Um, I want to take a slight detour here. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, live action animation combination that they use in this film, which is the same technology that they used in Mary Poppins. So this technology was developed by... Is this the... This is the magical amulet. Oh my God, yes. Please. So uh, this technology was developed by three people. uh, Petro Vlahos, uh, Ab Iwerks, who actually was the director of a lot of the original... Mickey Mouse shorts Mm. and Wadsworth pole. And it's called sodium vapor process for yellow screen. And so uh, with normal uh, like chroma key, blue screen, green screen systems, you uh, use a chemical process to shoot people against a green screen. And then you eliminate that color to create a mat. And then you shoot a separate shot with that mat to create two images Uh, one will be the foreground, one will be the background, and then you superimpose those two images together. The sodium vapor light process actually eliminated the need to do any of that, and it created what they called a roaming mat. And the way that it worked is that they didn't use a green screen or a blue screen, they actually set up a white screen as the background behind the live action people. And they lit this white screen with sodium vapor lights that reflect on a very narrow wavelength of yellow. It's a very specific wavelength of light. And then they lit the foreground people using uh, normal lights and the camera had a prism in front of it. And this prism was designed so that that very specific narrow yellow wavelength of light would be directed to the right and every other wavelength of light would be directed to the left. To the right would be the film that would create the mat, and to the left would be the film that creates the foreground. And so they created both the foreground and the background at the exact same time. This boggles my mind every time I hear this. The one side of this camera setup could only see the background, because the prism was only reflecting that very specific, narrow wavelength of light. Here's the thing. After they created it, they created one prism and it worked. This, this was all theoretical. And they said, this would be amazing if it worked. They created a prism and it worked. They built the camera. And they're like, this is amazing. They made Mary Poppins, tried to build a second one. They could never recreate it. Really? They could never create a second prism that would do the exact same thing. So there was only one in existence. And Walt Disney owned it. Wow. The only real roaming mat technology was owned by Walt Disney. They sometimes licensed it out to other studios. In fact, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds used this technology. Are you guys picking up this squirrel having a fight next to me? Oh, no. There's
0: just a squirrel having a go next to me. Remember, you do have those bear bells. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm taking a picture of it. It can see me. Oh, my God. It's staring at me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You
2: definitely should not have used those bear bells.
0: How big is the gap under the door? I think I'll be okay. So, prisms. All right. Back to it, John.
2: Prisms. Yeah. So, the magical prisms. Um... The only one that existed was owned by Disney. They licensed it out. Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds used this magical prism camera. Um, But Disney was the only one who owned this technology. And they never really created equivalent alternatives until like star wars and that for that they used uh computer programmed cameras that would be able to shoot the exact same thing multiple times mm. and that way you could have moving cameras and create what they called the, the roaming Dijkstra mat. camera the Dijkstra cam yeah and so you could create these yeah. roaming mats that way which were after they created it somewhat cheaper and easier to use than this the only prism that exists in the universe camera.
0: <laughs> it's amazing that this thing
2: exists. But until the late 70s, if you wanted really good green screen, there was a single camera that did it. Wow. I find it amazing. I kind of wanted to see like some sort of Mission Impossible story where someone tries to steal this magical Disney camera because it's the only one in existence.
0: Well, there's a there's a corridor crew thing where they, they go over and show uh, the Mary Poppins scene. Um, and like the guys are just freaking out because they're like, this is amazing. Like the hair, like even the particles in the doilies, like in their clothing on the tablecloth, like it's absolutely perfect. Yeah. Right. And it's because of this camera. And it's like, you can sort of recreate that today, right? With using modern technology, but like it's, it, absolutely boggles the mind that it was accom- be able to be accomplished because of this very specific, like, crystal that they <laughs> made.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine the safe that they kept this in? Like, in Walt Disney's office? Yeah. He just opens it up. It's got a big crystal in there. <laughs> the only one in the world. <laughs> this is the secret of my power. And it would have been true! He could say yeah. that!
1: <laughs>
2: anyway, so... We get this animation sequence. It starts off with them under the water. They sing a song called uh, In the Briny Sea. It it, it is bobbing along, the bobbing along, along the bottom of the beautiful briny
1: sea. Because I remembered it almost verbatim as I watched it. Because as I said, not only the unmentioned name of Rob's, who he is spiting not watching this movie. This was also a childhood (laughs) favorite of my own.
2: It's not a bad song. It actually was originally written for Mary Poppins. Um, it would have been cut from Mary Poppins. There was a sequence in the Mary Poppins book where almost the exact same thing happens. They travel around the world using like a magical compass. And one of the things they do is they end up traveling under the ocean. And then they sing this song. It was cut. And they said, let's just put that in bed knobs, which they did. Um, It's not a bad song. (laughs) I don't mind the fish dancing, like you said, Rob. They eventually get out of the ocean because they're caught by Baloo. But he's not Baloo. Uh, It's clearly Baloo. Yes, it's blue. It's not played by the same voice actor. Then he takes them to. Wait,
0: wait. Sorry, go ahead, Rob. I was gonna say, what's the um the bad guy from the lion from Robin Hood? King John. King John. King John. Yeah. Yeah, because this is it the same character too for the king in this one.
2: It's very close. Yeah. Well, or good King Richard. It kind of looks more like good King Richard, but like, yeah, it's just the Jungle Book animation again. All the same characters just taking the character models from
0: different ones and just didn't they couldn't be bothered it was a leftover.
2: Yeah, so this king has the amulet that they're looking for. This this st- King Leonidas, is that his name? King Leonidas. Not only the king of the Spartans but also King Leo, so Leo the Lion. Yeah. That's Yeah. A, yeah. Interesting pun. I like it. So he's wearing this star of Astaroth which they're looking for which has the magical words on it. Keep in mind I watching the film could pause and just read the words on the star and then they're done. So why – they decide they need to steal this star, but they can read it. It's in front of them. They just need the words that they're looking at. Yeah. I don't understand the plot. They decide they need to steal this star and in order to do that, they need to get close enough to this king and the king wants to play a game of soccer. But they can't play a game of soccer because they don't have an umpire. By umpire, you mean ref. Ref, whatever. It's Britain. Come yeah. on. <laughs> umpire is yeah. baseball all right he's gonna be the referee of this football game. there you go football <laughs> perfect then they just have an animated football game that lasts forever and so here like i With said the same i was joke
0: over and over again the same and the same animation over and over again they just reuse the same
2: cells like they use the same drawings like a hundred times i don't understand why this game goes on so long i don't i don't understand the logic that went into they play a. F- they watch a football game. Here's what occurred to me. Why is this movie such a kind of a step down from Mary Poppins? And in Mary Poppins, you had Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. And say what you will about Dick Van Dyke's accent, but that guy gives 110% in that film. Yeah. Those people sing and dance up a storm. They are jumping. They are swinging. They are tap dancing. They do absolutely everything. In this movie- Dick Van Dyke still tap dances. Like, he's, he can't turn it on. No, he's constantly doing it. Yeah. He, he did it in uh, Diagnosis Murder, every single episode. <laughs> yeah, he was just tap dancing. The tap dancing doctor detective. <laughs> what, what's that show about? Was he a doctor detective? Was he solving murders? I think so. He's, he was a doctor who anybody came in dead, and he, would, he, he constantly would Diagnosis Murder, and then he would tap dance. <laughs> yeah.
1: A lot of seasons out of that
0: gimmick. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, It's like House, except for he just says murder when he comes with a solution. (laughs)
2: Stop dancing, House.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, you know, Angela Lansbury is wonderful. She has a lot of musical theater training, but she really does not bring any dancing skills to this movie. No offense to her. I, I did read that
1: she actually apparently had said she didn't like what she referred to as the acting by numbers in this because her movements had to be so specific because of the effects and the animation and... She says she more liked to just kind of move around and explore the character and find who she was. So she said she didn't enjoy, like, how rigid this was.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I can totally see that, that it was maybe just a conflict of the type of movie they were making and her particular acting approach and her style. Because, like, it obviously isn't a completely inhibiting approach because it's the exact same technology it's the exact same people that made Mary Poppins and Mary Poppins is amazing and like Dick Van Dyke is tap dancing with the penguins and he's jumping and flapping his arms and he's doing all of this amazing stuff and in this movie they sit down and watch cartoon characters play football the first thing that occurs to me is why aren't they playing in the game you have this technology that lets live action and animation interact with one another why aren't they playing they should be the other team you should like I think that would be an interesting scene to see where you play a game of football with live action and animation characters yeah make some stakes they win they get the amulet none of that happens they just watch it yeah they just watch a boring yeah. game and we have to sit there and watch it with them yeah <laughs> it's bizarre anyway they eventually do steal the amulet that has the magic words on it but nobody thinks to look at those magic words. No. They do once. Do they? They, Because they
0: say that like,
2: she forgets them. Alright, if she looks at them, she doesn't make note of them because everybody forgets them. Because what happens is as soon as they leave the island go back to the real world, the amulet disappears and so they can't see the words on the Star of Astaroth.
0: Yeah, and then you get some sweet sexism there, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah, doesn't the the dad from Mary Poppins say women are always losing things? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's I don't know. It's 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 a strange. I don't know. It it really felt to me like this movie was running as fast as it could away from anything I wanted it to be. <laughs> like it was trying. Right. Like at the, at about the halfway point, it felt like it was actively trying to just just squander any good will I had towards it from the first half. Um, the kid then says, "Hey, I know what the magic words are." because they're written in my book and everyone goes shut up and then they like go about their day now i understand that the this is the trope of the kid having the answer and nobody listening to the kid because the adults think that the kid can't possibly know the answer but like like he has the explanation like they're hearing him say it i have it it's written down right here yeah and then they all say shut up i wish someone had written it down like it it's It's not like he's just trying to get their attention.
0: He's literally telling them, no, it's right here. Here are the five words. Let me say them now, please. And then they, yeah. Like,
2: and they leave. Like, they walk out of the room. Yeah. And it takes, like, three hours. Like, it's, like, later that day when <laughs> someone finally listens to him. It's weird. If that
0: animation scene was any sort of entertaining, that payoff might have been okay to me. But because it was so long and so boring and the fact that it was just in his books... The whole time, and it didn't need... They didn't need to go do any of that animation stuff. It just made it so much worse for me. Yeah. Like, Like, I was just like, are you kidding me? You've got this MacGuffin the whole time, or this whatever. You just have the answer right in front of you. You could have skipped another 20-minute chunk of this film.
2: Especially because earlier, before they went to the island, he was like... I have this book about the island. Yeah! And nobody, like, looked at it. I mean, to be fair, the trope I think you guys are saying should have happened is because nobody
1: knows about the island of the Boom, Boom until they're in the basement cellar of the bookman and his illicit collection of illegally gained books. And he tells them about the island of the Boom, Boom and the boy's like, oh, I know about it. I have it here in my book. And they don't have time to think, well, let's go back home and read the book. They're just like, take us to the island of the Boom, Boom.
2: I get it, but, like, he he had the book there. Yeah. He, it's not like he left it at home. He takes it out and they could have just looked at it and been like oh wait there are those are the words we're done i mean it's true there is there was an opportunity for the kid to be like oh this amulet what's it in the back
1: of my book it is and then they just go back home and have the spell
2: <laughs> that would have made more sense but instead we had to watch that fucking football game yeah oh yeah God. all right so now they have the words and they then they can go and do the final spell bobby tell us about the final spell it, it can it, it can animate inanimate objects but it doesn't
1: work when angela lansbury tries it on his shoes and so well, it sort of works
0: it does but it's
1: unruly but it, it's unruly and it doesn't work and so amelius brown says it needs substitutionary locomotion and has to sing a song about it
0: that's what the that's what the spell is called substitutionary locomotion, yeah.
1: right and he sings it yeah, yeah and when he sings it and gives it some rhythm because he says that's what it needs that's what works is suddenly the shoes start dancing but then it then
0: all hell breaks loose
1: But then the spell is unruly and it brings everything to life. I mean, I did like how offended Angela Lansbury is that he's like dancing with her best dressing gown. And then (laughs) that the pair of men's gloves proceeds to tap him on the shoulder and punch him in the face. I want to know what the backstory is behind those ghosts. Or, like, that these objects were already an item before <laughs> they were animated. <laughs> this is where you also get Rowdy McDowell again.
2: Yeah, with his little business with a hat. Because he shows up because he's like, I'm going to woo that woman now. Yeah. And then he shows up outside and the magical hat's like... There's a, there's a clothing party and, like, leaves his head to fly inside. A la
1: The Simpsons. I have to go now. My planet needs me. Just kind of floats out of the frame. <laughs> um... <laughs> And then does the nightgown the night does the nightgown come after him as well outside? No, I think just the hat comes back. Just 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 the hat comes back, and he
2: runs away and decides he'll come steal her land another day. <laughs> he has zero lines of dialogue. He, he comes back. I thought for sure I was like Roddy McDowell's back. We're finally going to see why he's third build. Doesn't say a single word. Nope, nope. This song that they're singing, I substitutionary locomotion. Like the premise of it, I like. You got the Sherman Brothers writing music for you and. Story-wise, you're going to say, okay, she can't get the spell to work, so they got to give it a really good song to get it going. It's going to be so catchy that all of the objects are going to start dancing. The song, to the best of my recollection, is just substitutionary locomotion. Sub. They just say the words over and over in the most, like, staccato, boring rhythm I've ever heard. These guys wrote supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and, like, there's a song. The story point of it is that it's so catchy, it makes inanimate objects dance. And they write the most boring thing I have ever heard in my life. Draguna, Nicoya... The Corum Satis D. There's the yeah, the Latin words. Those are the magical words. Yeah, like that's right, because that's
1: that's the backbeat of the song, and he sings substitutionary locomotion above that.
2: It's just it's an extremely boring song. <laughs> you know, like I I was very unimpressed. And at the end of it, that later that day, they the kids say to
0: the con man, you should be our father. <laughs> <laughs> because he made them fried food. So Where the fuck did this come from? I know the kids were sent off to go live with Angela Lansbury because of the... Lansbury. Because of the bombing. But
2: are we led to believe they're orphans? I think they have to be based on the way this ends. Like, at the beginning, I assumed they weren't. Because families would just send the kids. And then the parents would stay in London because they had jobs. Like, London didn't disappear. As we saw, Portobello Road is happening. But, like, um, uh, they sent the kids away. But these kids, maybe the kids think their parents are dead. But then they're like, will you be our dad?
0: But they don't say anything to Angela Lansbury about will you be our mom? (laughs) Well, she's a witch. Yeah.
2: (laughs) And to be fair, their first instinct was to con her. Yeah. So the fact that their first instinct is to, well, to extort her. And then they see a man who's already conning her. And they're like, we got to get in on this. Think of how much we can get out of this woman if we combine our powers. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's like, we didn't success. This guy's a really good con man. He could really help us in this.
2: They're setting themselves up for some very, you know, Oliver Twist-style machinations. Okay, guys.
0: In a hilarious uh, twist of fate, I have about 10% battery left on my phone here. So I may drop out... During the climax of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the part that you And he will never watch. know
2: how the movie ends. Yep. All right. Well, if you drop out, I'm gonna assume it's the battery and it's not a bear. Cause remind us, if it is a bear, you're gonna ring your bear bells, right? I'll ring them bells. Okay, so the situation that we're at is that they have sung their song about their substitutionary locomotion. It's still quite unruly, it doesn't really work well. Angela Lansbury's a little disappointed. The organizer who sent the children to Angela Lansbury in the first place shows up and says, Good news, we found a different house for these kids, Angela Lansbury. You don't need to look after them anymore. And the kids say, Oh, but we're gonna stay here. And um, this con artist is gonna be our father. And the con artist goes, well, I actually have to go back to London. Then he he goes and he sleeps at the train station. Because he's so shocked at the prospect of these kids wanting to spend time with him, they've known him for one day. The kids are coming on a little strong. I have to agree, yeah i would I would be in that guy's shoes too, less than a day, and they're like, "You're our new dad." <laughs> uh, to be fair though, he's homeless, yeah, he doesn't really have any prospects. He's unbreakable this woman to find an actual witch. He goes back to the train station and then he has a vision. He doesn't have a vision of a family. He doesn't have a vision of how much fun he's had with the kids under the sea. He doesn't have a vision of him falling in love with Angela Lansbury. He has a vision of the con that he's been trying to play this whole time of Angela Lansbury (laughs) being his assistant and doing all of the magic for him while he takes the credit. And that's what convinces him, I think, to turn around. Yeah,
1: never mind. I got to go back. The con is on and he gets up and leaves the train station. I didn't actually understand this when I was a kid. I didn't know what he was hallucinating. Possibly because I was watching it on a, like, 20-inch CRT television from a, a, like, taped version off of the Magical World of Disney. So I had no idea what that ghost was. It wasn't until watching it the other week being like, oh, it's, it's Angela Lansbury in the costume. Oh, that's much sadder.
2: Oh, it's sexy Angela Lansbury. Yeah. <laughs> so while this is happening, we have an introduction of our... Third act, deus ex machina. The Nazis. <laughs> who have landed and are going to terrorize the populace by invading England. But not actually do anything, right? Their plan is just to like,
0: like start some shit, like not actually hurt anybody. They're just like, we're over here. No, <laughs> they're not actually invading. It's just a test of, it's a proof
1: of strength to show that they can do it and could invade at any time.
2: I actually thought originally I was like, is this an invasion? Are they like actually winning the war right now? Is it just these eight Nazis that are trying to invade Britain? But then yeah, he explains that, no, we're just trying to scare you. It actually makes a certain amount of sense is like stochastic terrorism. Like it's just, they're trying to terrorize the population by showing up anywhere. The Nazis could be anywhere. They're gonna show up in the North, right? So they come ashore and the only ones that can stop them are Angela Lansbury. And uh all of the empty Bobby explain to me what happens at the end. <laughs> explain to Robbie explain who to has... Robbie. Doesn't...
1: okay, so there's a whole sequence as Robbie said where these reasonable Nazis are like I mean, I don't want to say reasonable Nazis, that's a horrible sentence, but these calm Nazis
2: These ahistorically polite Nazis, that's let's good. put it that way.
1: Um say, look, I just need to finish up my paperwork, lock them in the museum. I need them out of their house.
2: Robbie, are you are you gonna make it to the end? <laughs> and he's gone. He's never going to hear the no, end of this movie. He never is. <laughs> Robbie, just try and listen. We're going to try and get through this. Bobby, explain the ending of the movie quickly. Uh, what's his face? Um,
1: turns himself, He goes back to the house, sees the Nazis. My One of my favorite scenes of the movie is I didn't catch this as a kid. He one punches two Nazis. He one punch and those Nazis are out. Finds out the plans of what's going on. Uses his own transformation spell to turn himself into a rabbit. Comes... Back to the museum to tell everyone what the plans are as a rabbit. And the way they know that it is Mr. Brown as the rabbit is because the first thing he does is jump into Angela Lansbury's crotch. And she looks up and says, it is Mrs. is Mr. Brown. <laughs> that is the tell. And then they're trying to figure out what to do. And they say, what about all these soldiers? You could just use them. And so she holds up the broom in one hand. And says the magic words out loud and suddenly there's an echo as if to say the spell means something and it seemingly is not going to work. Until the children say, Oi, look! You see the flags of war begin to wave as if the statues are coming to life. At this point, my partner walked by and she had seen the Nazis and was like, Are you fucking kidding me? And I was like, no, just watch what they get dealt with. To which all the suits of armor in the museum come to life. Every single one. You don't really get a full shot of how big museum is, but it turns out there is at least 100 soldiers from every single British war throughout the entirety of history lined up on the coast of England. And they all start marching towards the coast, all singing Laguna, Dracoya, Dracorum, Satis D," to which my partner said the last spell in his book was necromancy. And she sat down and watched the end of the movie with me, and all she could say was... I would have been way too into this as a child. Wow. I'm glad I didn't see this when I was a, when I was like a little kid, because I would have loved it too much. To which case, the Nazis see a couple soldiers and I think it's nothing, cut to a shot of suits of armor, people from the Renaissance, people from the 1800s, the red coats are there. Every suit of armor is lined up on the coast and they march upon the Nazis to which all I could think of was there's a Slayer song, Rise Ghosts of War. And that is what came to my head as the, dead of england rise again to defend her coast all chanting terrorizing the nazis with their tactics um this was my favorite scene as a child and this is why i loved it so much because i love that the nazis take their machine guns and they shoot them in the suits of armor and the suits of armor simply take their helmets off and shake the bullets out in front of them and put their heads back up the one opens up his flap and spits the bullets back at the nazi to say to let him know that you cannot hurt me that this i will defend my lands Um, and then the Nazis just all basically run around a la Benny Hill with their pants around their ankles, scared shitless, and they soon realize they have a, they have a machine gun and they realize that it is Angle Time Price flying around and that the witch is the cause of the magic. So if they can take care of her, the suits of armors will collapse. And they do eventually hit her. Um, she does eventually go down, but not before the ghosts of the British dead. Defend their aisles one last time Much more so than the old men Who have been marching around the town for months If not years have been doing
2: Alright Bobby I gotta say That was like a thousand times better (laughs) Than watching it (laughs) And I haven't heard a response from Robbie So he has not heard the end of the movie yet (laughs) Yeah Robbie's gone Robbie still didn't get the ending (laughs) After all of that we build up all of this (laughs) And after you tell him He's gone He's never going to know how it ends. He'll listen to the episode. He'll he'll just have to listen. Robbie, if you're listening, um, I hope you didn't get eaten by a bear. And uh, we'll see you next episode. All right? Uh, Hopefully, if not, our our next episode will be dedicated to Rob. No, thanks. I'm not thirsty. (laughs) So the very end of this movie, after the Nazis are defeated, is that it cuts to a little while later, the children are happily living with Angela Lansbury and... David Tomlinson is going to war, which I found such an absurd ending to this movie. Like, I understand it's supposed to be that he yeah. he, he is taking responsibility for himself. He's taking responsibility uh, for the country, and he's finally doing something good. But dude is old. Dude's in his 50s. He's not – and he's enlisting for the first time. He is not going to win this war for Britain. He probably could have, like, been the father these kids wanted. That would have been a lot more useful. He'd rather go die than actually be part of a family. Yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) at the end of the movie, he's like, oh, I'd love to be your father, kids, but there's this war. Uh, I just enlisted, so I can't. I can't actually do it. And he is is
1: now running out on on, not one, but two families. Because he is running out on his Mary Poppins family as he plays the part of Mr. Brown. Basically. So that's the end of the film. I'm going to just interject. Robbie had enough. Enough juice in his phone to text me to say, I heard most of what Bobby said, followed by three applause emojis. Oh my
2: god, he heard the end of the film.
1: He heard the end of the film. Okay, text him back, tell him, where does he rank it? He says, I'm heading back, as it's getting dark, talk to you later, I did not get eaten by a bear, or is that exactly what a bear would say? So we will never know what Robbie thought of this movie, as he has been eaten by a bear, and a bear has taken
2: his cell phone. Alright, we'll have to ask him next episode. I liked parts of it. I think the animation sequence is quite long, and it really does not pay off in any justified way. I like Angela Lansbury and David Tomlinson, but I think the movie is held back by the fact that they don't really do any singing and dancing, at least in the same way that you get in Mary Poppins. Um, There's a lot of sequences that are similar, and... You know, you look at Mary Poppins with the step in time sequence, and the step in time sequence is great. It's just a big dance sequence, but one of the key differences is Dick Van Dyke is part of it. Yeah. And it plays into the character. You get some character development, and it furthers the story. But the fact that these people are chimney sweeps, it's literally one of the dirtiest jobs in the world. But the message and the lessons that these kids are learning is that even when you're doing a dirty job, you can have fun doing it. And Dick Van Dyke is proving that by singing and dancing while they're literally jumping into chimneys. And it's the most amazing thing. They're just giving it 110%. In this movie, every one of these dance sequences are the characters sit down and watch other people dance for no story reason. Yeah, And it's, uh, it's held back in that way. Um, you know, if I was going to rank it, I'm going to put it around Blackbeard's Ghost. Uh, either just above Blackbeard's Ghost or maybe honestly just below it. I might put it below Blackbeard's Ghost above black hole it's a um, tough one for me because like i said i, I
1: love this movie as a kid and i loved the suit of armor thing and i don't know if it's maybe because i had this thing if i i mean i've lost my accent a long time ago i was actually born in england and i just loved things that were english and there's also this weird thing i don't know if anyone else can attest to it but when you're english and you're raised in a different country you're still told that you're british and it doesn't matter that you're canadian and you're losing your accent you're always going to be british first even my Family in England that weren't born in England, like, make sure a point to tell me, like, oh, yeah, you're British. And I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm Canadian. They're like, no, 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 you're not. You're British. And I'm like, well, you're also Polish. They're like, no, we're British now. So I don't know if, like, that had some sort of sense as to why I loved it. But I think I'd probably agree with you. It's probably somewhere kind of around, like, above or below Blackbeard's Ghost for me. <laughs> I love the ending, but, like, kind of rewatching it is like, oh, some of these sequences, like, go on for a really long time. But it's,
2: it's tough because I had a lot of nostalgia from this one. And it wasn't, it wasn't bad. Yeah, I don't think it was bad. And in fact, I think it the premise in the story sets it up to be a lot better than it ends up being, I think. Uh, like I said, I think throughout the first half of, half of this movie, I was really engaged in where they were going with it. In fact, I think it's a more engaging story than Mary Poppins. I have a hard time even remembering what the story of Mary Poppins is. Like Mary Poppins, I've seen it probably like five times, but yeah. because it's just a bunch of short vignettes taken from multiple different books, like if... If you ask me, does the the sequence where they go to the guy's house and he sings, I Love to Laugh, take place at the first half of the movie, the second? I don't know. If you were to ask me, like, when does, when do they jump into the animated world? I don't know. I don't know what order anything happens in in Mary Poppins because it's random. This movie, I like the story. I just feel like, yeah, once they, once they get into that animated world, even like the Uh, Portobello Road stuff. It just goes on forever and it feels like it doesn't pay off the way that it should. Although I do like the ending. I agree the ending's a lot of fun. I think the ending picks up quite a bit during the big Nazi battle sequence. Um, So I got a few comments here about other stuff that came out during this time in 1971. We also got Barefoot Executive starring Kurt Russell. Where Kurt Russell... Okay, this is my favorite premise. This was right after Disney died so so this is only a few years later and disney releases a movie called the barefoot executive starring kurt russell and the premise is kurt russell and a monkey team up to pick hit tv shows (laughs) which to me kind of sounds like Disney disney's entire business strategy at the time yeah scandalous john i've never heard of this it's about a crotchety landowner who don't Want No Government. It kind of sounds like uh, Gran Torino, but from 1971. Uh, the third movie, Million Dollar Duck. Someday we're going to do it, man. Someday we're going to do Million Dollar Duck. I mean, with a title like that, like, how can it be bad? And fourth was Bedknobs and Broomsticks. All right, so um, Robbie's not here, and so we could really decide anything, but I promised him, I swore to him that our next episode was going to be Return to Oz, so for Robbie's sake in memoriam to rob who disappeared and was probably eaten by a bear we are going to do return to oz we don't have robbie to do his catchphrase to uh end our podcast bobby say something something funny we gotta go out on a high note
1: no fried food how'd you keep your health all
2: right well you know that's now your catchphrase and you have to say that every episode done i say it every day anyway (laughs) (laughs) that's the show If you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time, send us an email at thepodcastwartennisshoes at gmail.com. We can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at podwar. That's at P-O-D-W-O-R-E. And if you like the show, give us a good review on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks. What a terrible name for the show i yeah.